Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome uh, to our Aerospace Nation series. Uh, we are very pleased that uh, Dr. Victoria Coleman, uh, the new chief scientist of the U.S. Air Force, could join us today as a sci scientific advisor to the Air Force Chief of Staff and the Secretary of the Air Force. Dr. Coleman is responsible for identifying and analyzing the technical challenges facing the Air Force today. Dr. Coleman draws on more than 35 years of experience in computer science and technology, including both as an academic leader and industry executive. She previously served in a series of executive positions in the technology industry and as a director of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So welcome, Dr. Coleman, and thank you very much for making time to join us today, and congratulations again on your recent appointment. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure bet. to be here. Well, what I'd like to do is start off uh, by giving you an opportunity uh, to make a few remarks on the critical challenges that your team is facing and some of the your top priorities as you look into the future. So over to you. Ah, okay. Uh, that, that might turn out to be a, a strategic error on your part, but I'm happy, uh, happy to share with you um, the, 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 the context and the, and the background that uh, you know, I, have, um, I have been living in for many years now and what I'm hoping to bring to the, to the position here. So as you know, you know, I spent most of my career outside of government. In fact, my, my DARPA position was the very first government job I ever had, which is uh, perhaps an, an odd, a slightly odd introduction to our government service, although prior to that I had served on the Defense Science Board. So I spent most of my career uh, in, the, um, uh, in the private sector. Um, so um, I also had the privilege of, you know, kind of falling into computer science early on. So I've also, you know, over my career seen the, you know, the trials and tribulations of our discipline and how it has changed to be what it is today. So. Um, you know, hopefully, I, 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 I'm at the crosshairs of these two um, kind of forces, and I hope to bring some of that um, kind of background and the way of thinking to the Air Force. And I, to be frank, I think that's why I was hired. I wasn't hired uh, on the basis of my extensive government service because my government service was rather short um, for coming to, uh, to the Air Force. I am thrilled to be here. You know, in, 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 in my career, you know, I started off, as you pointed out, as an academic, um, you know, doing lots of things in the lab and having a lot of fun, but then also being frustrated because the things we were doing in the lab would never find the light of day. You know, nobody would use them. And like, why wouldn't people use them? So all my career, you know, I've been trying to get closer and closer and closer to where people actually could use the technologies to do something, um, you know, something different. Um, so in many ways, it's a natural progression coming here after serving uh, at ARPA because now the, the privilege of serving inside of a service that is a user, um, and perhaps a primary user uh, of the innovations that DARPA kind of brings around. Um, so what uh, what matters? What I, what I think about? Um, I think a lot about the, the context within which um, the Air Force um, pursues its mission. And I think about the technology environment within which it pursues its mission. And that uh, has changed a great deal, needless to say. Um, and it's changed in kind of subtle ways. I mean, you know, it used to be the case that 
most of the innovation that we depended on actually came from uh, the defense industrial base. Uh, that stopped being the case some time ago. Uh, but then, you know, when you think about it, what do we depend on today? Well, it used to be that, you know, we depend on things like the cloud and, you know, PCs and software, software operating systems of various, various kinds. They came from, you know, what I would call the large established IT companies, the Microsofts of the world, the Hewlett Packards of the world. But if you think about now, what defines, you know, the kind of technology landscape within which the Air Force has to operate today, it's a little different. You know, it's a, um, you know, it's a phone maker. It's an advertising company, heaven forbid. Um, it's a uh, retailer. It's a company that keeps your, your, uh, your, your address book. These are the companies that are defining the technology landscape within which the Air Force has to prosecute its mission. So the interesting thing about that is that these are all consumer technologies. So what you're having now is an ascendancy in fact of consumer technology and that affects everything else that we do. Um, so we, I think it's a, it's a, it's a well-known fact, you know, we have uh, trouble, you know, connecting the needs that we have in the department and satisfying them with technology that comes from the private sector. It's twice as hard if it's the consumer space that these technologies are evolved in that we would need to absorb in the department. And it's triply hard because our competition doesn't have that problem. So as, as you well know, uh, you know, they, in, uh, in China, they have this, um, call it MCF, military civil fusion, that um, President um, Xi Jinping is personally in charge of. And the stated objective is uh, to make sure that every single innovation that happens in, um, you know, in the private sector uh, is harnessed to support you know, China's drive to become the, the premier uh, military power in the world. Uh, so for them, it's built in. For us, I think in the department, it's fair to say that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a struggle. So I come to this position, you know, very mindful of the need to bridge that gap. And, you know, many of the things that, um, you know, uh, you'll hear me talk about, and I, I did talk about when I was at DARPA, um, are informed by, you know, that um, almost paranoia, I think, that I have with our ability to absorb some of that technology back into our mission. Um, the other thing that I, that I, uh, that I just want to put on, on your radar is something that actually my good friend Christine Fox talks about all the time um, at, uh, at APL. You know, we, we, we don't have a deficit of innovation uh, in the department. We have a ton of it. What we struggle with is translating that innovation into fieldable um, technology. And there's a whole host of reasons, as you know, why that is the case. Um, I, I, you know, I will say that, you know, my motto is that innovation is not something that belongs in our case to the AFRL, our brilliant researchers in the AFRL. Innovation needs to be executable by the entire organization, all the way, you know, from you know, my boss, Chief Brown, all the way to the kind of lowest leaf in hierarchy in, uh, in the Air Force. Um, and so it's something that we need, we need to be thoughtful about, and it's something that we need to be uh, deliberate about, um, you know, understanding, implementing, and, uh, you know, making it, um, 
making it a, a, a reality. So that kind of drives, I think, a whole bunch of stuff. I will say also one last thing, and that I'm very proud of. Um, you know, in every position I've had before, including my position at DARPA, I always harped on and on <laughs> about the need to have an S&T strategy. And you know what? In the Air Force, we have one. And not only we have one, but I will brag that it's perhaps the most um, uh, the most well-structured strategy that I've seen in a long while. And, you know, we all, you know, look back to the, um, you know, to the Harold Brown years and the magic that was perpetrated back then, you know, inside this amazing building. Um, I think the, uh, the S&P strategy that uh, the department uh, put forward uh, in 2018, taking us out to 2030, um, is actually a... Um, I think it's an exemplar of what a strategy ought to be because, you know, um, the team that put it together um, resisted the temptation to produce a list of technologies. You know, the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is somebody says, what's your S&T strategy? Oh, it's quantum. What is this? What is that? It's like, no, stop. What is it for? You know, like, you know, my boss, Steve Brown says readiness. Ready for what? Uh, so I, I think here it's the same, you know, strategy you know, for what? So we um, uh, we are fortunate in having a strategy that actually you know focused on what we want the Air Force to be, how we want the Air Force to distinguish itself, you know, in, as it as it competes, as it prosecutes its mission, and then from that we figured out there were some capabilities that we needed to have available, and from that our brilliant researchers in the FRL and other places would go off and build out these capabilities. So I think we are blessed with a um, um, with an S&T strategy that uh, can be um, uh, truly material as we, you know, as we align our resources and our efforts in order to make innovation happen and have it matter actually uh, for the Air Force by taking it all the way to the end. So with that, I'll stop. Maybe some questions uh, that either you or people in the audience have, uh, just to give you an opportunity, perhaps to uh, to to react to some of the things that I've said. Well, first, uh, thanks very much for that context and insight, uh, and thanks for everything you and your team is uh, is doing. Um, I really appreciated and valued your comments on strategy being not just a list of things, uh, but the tie between ultimately what you want to accomplish in the context of desired outcomes or desired effects. And yeah, technologies are a means to get there. Uh, anyway, uh, congratulations with that. Now let's uh, jump in a little deeper uh, on that and a couple other um, uh, topics that you, you raised. Um, you did previously co-chair the review panel um, for the Air Force's S&T strategy that we, we were just chatting about. Uh, and obviously it provides a blueprint for the Air Force to maximize and expand its technological advantage. Uh, that strategy called for some, for some sweeping changes to the way that the Air Force develops new, te new technologies. So could you share with us a little bit more what you see as the main technological opportunities and hurdles um, that the Air Force needs to overcome to uh, accomplish its ultimate uh, outcomes and uh, uh, desired effects? I, uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. So, um, you know, you, you're right um, in, in your assessment of the strategy. In the strategy, you know, we looked at the, 
at the what, we also looked at the how. So as well as saying, you know, look, these are the capabilities that we need in order to win. We also said how we're going to go about reading our S&P enterprise to deliver on those capabilities. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, now that I'm on the inside and I've, I've had the opportunity to, um, you know, to receive some briefings on um, the execution of the strategy, I'm truly, you know, uh, truly heartened to see um, how much change already has taken place and how mindful and deliberate that change has, uh, has been on um, the, uh, the how part. On the, um, on the kind of technology side, the strategy called, well, the strategy made the distinction between two kinds of technologies. Um, we talked about enduring lines of research, things that the Air Force, uh, you know, would need to be in for the long haul in order to reap the, uh, the fruit of that, um, of that investment. And then we talked about the transformational uh, component. So, um, by definition, you know, enduring areas of research like, you know, like quantum, um, like um, lasers, these things take years to mature. So you will have, uh, and, and Tim Bunning, uh, the, uh, the CTO of the FRL, calls them cylinders of excellence. I really like that metaphor. So you have the cylinders of excellence, um, but what we also need to be able to do, as, we, as I said a little earlier, is like take those things and produce a capability that actually is fieldable. So how do we get that? How do we get the crosstalk? So the transformational component of the strategy was meant to create an opportunity, a vehicle, and a resource pool to address exactly that question. Um, so uh, uh, the, 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 the goal uh, in, in the strategy and what has been implemented is 20% um, uh, of, uh, of our S&T budget is dedicated uh, to these transformational um, uh, efforts. And um, what we are hoping to achieve is change in, in five different domains. Um, we call them global persistence awareness, um, resilient information sharing, rapid effective decision making, uh, complexity, unpredictability, and mass, and uh, Number five is speed and reach of disruption and lethality. So we hope that when all that comes together, really we have a space force uh, and an air force. And I, I said space force quite deliberately there because we're now also two services. When the strategy was written, we only had one. Uh, both space force and air force that dominate the time, space, and complexity uh, across all operating domains. That's our ambition. That's our aspiration. That's what we think we need to do. Uh, in order to win. So, you know, how do we, um, how do we, again, arrange ourselves? How do we execute in order to get there? It's certainly, you know, it's something that I think about all the time. It's something that my colleagues within the S&T Enterprise, um, you know, General Pringle, uh, General Bunch, are thinking about all the time. It's also what the chief thinks all the time. So the chief, you know, as you know, he, he talks about um, the need to accelerate change or lose. So, you know, when we look at that in our context, in the S&T context, how do we, uh, you know, how do we follow that commander's intent? Well, we do that when we start building out this transformational cross-cutting uh, capabilities, and we do so in ways that, you know, we have not uh, attempted to do in the past. So, you know, I will tell you, you know, having seen 
how much work has already been done, how many interesting projects have been put together, how many of these vanguard programs we've been able to put together. I think we are making um, you know, some really important and um, with deep footprint footsteps. You know, these are footsteps that will take a long time to, uh, you know, to, to eliminate the, uh, the memory of. Um, hopefully that gives you a sense for how uh, overall we're approaching um, this and I and I understand that these areas are fairly um, these capabilities are very strategic, but unless we have that uh, as a goal, you know what they say: if you don't have a destination, all roads will take you there. And you know we can't afford that. You know we we have um, you know our air force um, and our space force we have a, a massive big mission. Um, you know we have to uh, we have to organize, train, and equip for today and for tomorrow um, with a massive uh, set of missions. We have to be really smart about how, uh, how we get after all of these, uh, uh, all of these you know, needs that we have and do so in a way that is effective. Um, no, I think that's very, <clears throat> excuse me, very helpful. Um, and those five elements that you mentioned, they're, they're cast again in the terms of a desired outcome or effect, and, I, and so my compliments uh, to you on that. Now, jumping from strategy down to a specific, um, the shortfall in domestic foundries for microelectronics has really become an issue of concern within the Air Force, driven given the critical importance of these components to military systems. Um, how important is it to the Air Force that it can secure a supply chain for microelectronics and what can the Air Force do to grow um, the related uh, domestic industrial base? So, you know, microelectronics um, is the fabric on which we depend to execute our mission more than anything else. I think, um, you know, I know there are some aspects of kinetics that matter too, but uh, you know, microelectronics really is uh, is present in just about everything that we do. So, you know, when when we look at um, at the need from uh, even a broader department perspective, you know, what do we need? You know, first of all, we need um, advanced components. Um, so we need availability of those things. Uh, we need them to be performant. In other words, we don't want antique parts. <laughs> uh, we need them to be trustworthy, uh, and we need them to be affordable. So, you know, it's it's um, it's not possible for us, you know, to have this exquisite part uh, that we're going to put inside of an airframe that we have to spend the equivalent of buying an aircraft carrier for. Right. Uh, so, so these are the you know, the things that we look at from a broader departmental perspective, and that certainly includes uh, includes the Air Force. Now, it's fair to say in our in our, in our um, kind of fight to secure these components for uh, for the Air Force, and we have you know, terrific partnerships within the department. So, um, the uh, the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering and uh, the counterparts in uh, in acquisition and sustainment had had made microelectronics their number one priority. Um, and you know, in the past three or four years, they've put together a significant roadmap that, you know, goes to not not only produce um, you know parts that we need for our uh, for our missions now and in the future, but also to secure and um, grow, revitalize, if you like, the domestic 
um, the domestic uh, fabrication uh, capability. So we look to uh, to the OSD and our partners um, uh, in ANS and RE as um, you know as primary drivers for that. However, uh, that's not to say that we're sitting on the uh, on the sidelines. The AFRL has a very um, um, robust program uh, in microelectronics. In fact, only last week, you know, I participated in a uh, in a in a two-day workshop um, working on microelectronics workforce issues. Because you know, um, when when you seek to secure uh, the, the 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 supply of these devices. Um, even if you have the money to build the fabs, somebody's got to operate them. Somebody needs to build um, the, um, you know, the, um, the, the, the innovation. Somebody needs to scale it. Somebody needs to, to calibrate the factory so that you have the yield that you need in order, you know, in order to succeed financially. All that requires talent. So you know, when we look at it, we we'll, we'll look at this from all the angles, right? So it's not just one piece, you know, somebody developing a new device somewhere or, um, you know, or, or a new part that we need for a mission. We look at the um, at the problem more more broadly. Not to say that the Air Force does not have specific requirements. Uh, we could speak, for example, about uh, rad hard components as being something that is particularly relevant for our mission, especially, you know, our, our Space Force. Uh, and these tend to be, um, Tend to be very specific parts, but even you know it's interesting. Even in in, in those cases, many times we find that we have to use commercial parts uh, and test them to our specifications in order to deploy them in those missions. And we you know we really this is this is like where really the kind of the rubber meets the road. We can't execute the missions that we need to execute without high-end microelectronics in those systems. And um, you know, it's uh, we, we really don't have an option. You know, we can't uh, we can't operate with antique parts and expect the levels of performance or support the missions that we know we need to fight with. Uh, you know, without uh, making those components available. And you know, then a whole bunch of other things. You know, are important certification. Um, you know, I can give you a part, but if it takes you ten years to certify it, you know, by the time so, so you know. I was saying earlier that innovation is a business of the entire enterprise. That's what I mean. I mean, you know, if if we can, if we have a a, a robust industrial base here at home, if we make these devices that we need, but then it takes us ten years to deploy them, we right. don't win. You know, we, we just lose more slowly. So. Right. Um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. No, thank you for that. Clearly, that's an area of ever-increasing uh, importance. Um, the, the Air Force is also seeking to uh, leverage human-machine teams to maintain an advantage over pure competitors. Um, in your time so far there in the Air Force, uh, how prepared do you believe the Air Force is to begin fielding the technologies to enable human-machine teams? And what does the Air Force need to do to demonstrate that it's really capable of doing so? Yeah, you know it's it's interesting, Dave. I mean, we uh, you know in many ways, you know, we've been operating human machine teams for many many years. It's just that these machines are getting more and more capable. Uh, so you know, there comes a point where you know we have to make uh, make that 
that determination be much more deliberate than uh, it otherwise is. So the, the good news is that we're not doing this on our own. Uh, so, uh, you know, as you all know, um, and again, you had Tim Grayson um, on your, um, you know, on your stage earlier today, um, you know, DARPA had, for example, the BH program, and um, there was a well-publicized uh, alpha dogfight um, uh, event uh, last summer. Um, and, you know, what was exciting, of course, there was, you know, AI, you know, driving, you know, missions and so on. But actually what DARPA was trying to figure out was how do we have humans and machines operate better together to get, you know, to get better outcomes. So um, I think some of that uh, experimentation is, is taking place already. Uh, but I will tell you, it, my own kind of, you know, my own assessment is the way to deploying more and more of these teams is more and more experimentation. Uh, and, and, and it's kind of interesting, you know, when, when we think about how we form human teams, how do we do that? Well, we do that. You know, I, I have a team here. I'm very fortunate to have a team. Um, we form teams by building trust in each other. And we build trust in each other how? Not by looking at each other, but by working together, by watching each other in action. Um, and also by having specialties. Uh, so there are people here that know a lot more about the Air Force than I will ever know. There are people here that know a lot more about lasers than I will ever know. We have a team that is heterogeneous uh, with different competencies that builds trust uh, over time. I don't think that human machine teams are gonna be any different. Um, I think we will build trust in these machines as we see them in execution. And we will also see machines that are not generic, they're not gonna be humans, you know, and we are like so, you know, we're so multifaceted as human beings. I think our machines will tend to be specialists in different domains. And, you know, they will, maybe they will get better than us in those domains. But at the end of the day, you know, I think the team that um, deploys more, um, that experiments more, that learns more about each other is the team that's going to succeed. I think somebody said, I don't know, um, I think, I think maybe, maybe this attribution is incorrect and if it is, I apologize. I think um, Elon Musk said that, you know, in order to succeed in his business, in this business of firing rockets and having them come back again, you know, on the ground without breaking up, he said you need multiple rendezvous with reality. Uh, and I think that is um, very much also what we need uh, in order to, um, to, to make more progress, not in the creation, but the fielding of these teams. Because, you know, we have a ton of technology. What we, um, what we need to work more of is how do we trust each other? Uh, how do we, you know, test a little, field a little, so that we feel comfortable, you know, to, uh, you know, to, uh, to go to war, to go persecute missions with these machines, with these, with, these, uh, with these hybrid teams. So for me, it's all about the experimentation. And you know, if I can say one more thing, I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to participate in a uh, in National Academy of Sciences study uh, that looked at test ranges. So you know, I was at DARPA, they invited me to speak to this, and I'm thinking, I don't know anything about test ranges, what am I gonna say? Anyway, so you know, we have this conversation and I have this, um, I have this kind of cast iron belief that the, the big systems, transformation systems, the way you get them out there is again by building a little, testing a little, fielding a little. So that's what I said to them. I said, how would we do that? You know, in, in software, we know how to do that. 
how do we do that, you know, with airplanes, with other equipment? Um, do we have, a, you know, will you give me a test range to, so I can do agile development? And I said, well, you know, we don't have such test ranges. So think about that, right? If, if our goal is to, uh, to get ahead by fielding rapidly, in order to do that, we need to change even the way that our testing infrastructure works. So we need to get this message of, you know, of agility and leanness and have it permeate the entire kind of, you know, again, innovation pipeline. So it's not good enough if, you know, our brilliant scientists at AFRL innovate. The brilliant people that build and operate test ranges, they gotta innovate too, in order for the, you know, the goodness to flow all the way to the war fighter. No, it's, a, it's great to hear you say that. And as you're talking, I'm thinking a bit that it's not, we, we tend to segregate activity. We tend to segregate air for, airplanes, uh, you, you know, in the Air Force by type to achieve efficiencies. But when you start looking at something like uh, a loyal wingman and we start uh, employing uh, uninhabited aerial vehicles with manned aircraft, uh, maybe we need to break that mold too. And instead of si assigning them to separate units, we integrate them together in the units that they will be operating with. So organizational change needs to be part of, the, of what you described as well. Um, I, uh, I, I, I wish I could disagree with you because I think it's really hard to do, but uh, I can't disagree with you. I, I think, you know, I think we, uh, in order to win, we need to find we need to fight jointly. So jointness, whatever that uh, implies for the different kind of components here, um, is what it's all about. And that's why you know I'm I'm so excited about the technologies that you know the STO, DARPA, and Mosaic, for example, and Stitches are uh, putting forward because um, you know that begins to give you um, you know the framework uh, that you can use in order to construct this kind of just-in-time, um, you know, uh, packages, at least, you know, for, for, for delivering capability. But it's something that really needs to transcend the entire enterprise. Right. So jointness is not something that can just happen, you know, when you go fight a mission. Jointness has to be how we operate, <laughs> how we think of ourselves. And, you know, and it's not just a business, you know, of the joint chiefs to think about jointness. <laughs> I mean... Everybody, you know, we, you know, while we specialize you know, within the services, we also need to be thinking um, jointly all the time because at the end of the day, that's how we're going to go fight. I mean, it's not going to be, you know, just the Air Force or just the, the Space Force or um, or any other of the services that goes to war alone. Well, the Army kind of thinks they can do that, but that's a <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for another I'm time. I'm not qualified to make any statements about <laughs> no, the Army. <laughs> well, I am, so that's why I made that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> The Air Force has described the advanced uh, battle management system as a military internet of things to connect sensors and shooters, and I'd also add effectors. Um, is this a fair description of the program given the differences between building commercial and military technology? And um, if so, what are the technological hurdles that the Air Force needs to overcome to achieve this kind of vision? So it's, uh, I, I had the opportunity to receive a briefing on ABMS uh, a couple of weeks ago, and honestly, this was my first one. So I'm hardly an expert. Uh, I, I need to preface uh, by saying that. And then, you know, perhaps my, my, first, my first comment, um, 
it will be about the description of it as a program. Um, I don't think that you know within uh, within the Air Force, um, you know, the ABMS kind of meets the standard requirement of what a program is. I think, uh, in truth, is a very advanced concept, um, and there is you know building and experimentation uh, going on as uh, as you as you know, but it's uh, it's not uh, it's not a program. Now, what it actually um, uh, tries to do. Uh, does approximate uh, what a, uh, a military Internet of Things would, uh, would look like. And that's where I think many of the challenges um, come through. So if you think about, you know, um, what does the Internet mean? Well, Internet, first of all, is available all the time. Uh, it's available all the time and, you know, you don't even know it. It's part of the, part of the fabric. It's so ubiquitous. It has disappeared. You don't see it. Um, so that means that ABMS, we need to provide uh, 24 by 7 connectivity um, across the globe, um, across classification um, domains, uh, across service jurisdictions, and Lord help us across allies. Um, and it will need to, um, to connect um, sensors and actuators in this cloud that's going to go off to, to fight a mission. So, uh, you know, I don't know of any program that would stress the, um, the technologies that we have in all these areas more than ABMS will do. I don't know of a program that's more ambitious, but I will tell you one thing. I don't know if ABMS will succeed. I hope it does. But even if it doesn't, you know, I'm, you know I, I am, I'm a big believer in having grand visions, but then delivering capability incrementally. You know, what I, so what I really want to know is, What's the first thing that we're going to do out of APMS? Because unless you know, unless you you have this multiple rendezvous with reality, you never make progress. You know, in 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 the um, in the commercial world, we think about MVPs, minimum viable products, and they're really the way that you know capability is delivered. And um, it it's a wonderful thing because once you have the capability in the hands of the end user. First of all, you create some value, one hopes, but then you learn a ton about what you need to do next. So instead of, you know, having this theory about what the, the plurality of the solution will be, by putting it in the hands of the operator in small increments, you begin to see what works, what doesn't work. The operator understands what the capability is. Um, they can figure out ways of using the capability that, you know, I as a scientist and engineer would never think about because I'm not trained in that. But if, if, this, if the technology stays, you know, stays in my lab, in my office, it never meets the light of day, it robs everybody of the opportunity to see what the true potential is. So, you know, my, um, you know, my, my hope, my desire for the ABMS system is not necessarily, you know, for them to think um, less ambitiously. They should think very ambitiously, but they should deliver incrementally. Right. So uh, I, I think that's what we need. We need, uh, you know, a, a, a frequent, um, frequent access to reality, deliver, uh, because then that, you know, that helps everybody. It helps the team that's building to feel uh, that they are actually helping the mission that they signed up to support. It helps the operator. It helps management understand what are the degrees of freedom that they have, and then it helps investment to flow in the right places. So, you know, I'm a big proponent of incremental delivery, and I think ABMS is it's a perfect vehicle for trying uh, trying that approach. Very good, thank you very much. That's a, it makes a lot of sense. 
Um, and the, the other part, if I can interject, um, the, the fundamental element upon which ABMS and all the other service equivalents uh, uh, rely on is the ubiquitous and seamless sharing of information. You alluded to that when you described the internet. Yeah. It might not be very sexy, but until we can get to the point where um, you know that that military cloud or inter that the Internet of Things can operate, military Internet of Things can operate on, is there 24/7, 365, and with a reliability of nearly 100%. Only then will we be able to realize um, those apps that people are innovating to put on. Uh, that internet right now. Okay, you. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, and it can't just be based on um, a radio frequency. We got to get into laser optical. Uh, uh, yeah, we could spend an hour on this. So let me. Let me, let me <laughs> the next hour. <laughs> uh, next question. You've previously discussed how many commercial enterprises. Um, have a hard time finding work with the Pentagon, how hard they find it working with the Pentagon. Um, when you consider the Air Force's uh, science and technology goals, um, where do you think the Air Force needs to make the greatest efforts to expand its collaborations with industry? So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, well, I'll tell you a couple of stories to indicate, you know, the, uh, kind of the, the, the depth of the problem as I see it. So, um, I, uh, just before going to DARPA, I was the CEO of an AI startup, a spin-out uh, out of Stanford. You know, the, the work that we did was, um, I thought, pretty phenomenal. You know, we would take a, an open source satellite image, we'd use some data from the ground, and we'll be able to tell if a village in Africa would have $5 a day to spend disposal income or one. We would take a patch of land in Africa, 10 by 10 meters, and we could tell you how much corn you would kill. Amazing stuff. Um, I had been at that point, uh, I had served on the Defense Science Board for five years. I had participated in the creation of the SD strategy for the Air Force. I knew the department. I did not know where to go, who to talk to about my little company and what we were doing. So, example one. Example two, um, you know, we have uh, this wonderful um, um, DIU uh, function now out in the valley. Uh, and they are small, but they're mighty. Um, when they started, though, um, it was a different story. So uh, I, um, I'm having actually dinner tonight with uh, the CEO of a company called Rombus um, that, is, um, that it is, is deploying a system here inside of the Air Force uh, called Guardian, an AI system. And they did that through DIU. But um, how that story starts is interesting. So the CEO, Anshu Roy, um, you know, a brilliant um, nuclear physicist, just like um, my uh, my MILDEP, Colonel uh, Serna, um, he had heard about DAU and he'd heard about the desire of the department to work with small companies. He had this thing in his hand that he thought would be so valuable. He heard about DIU, gets in his car, drives down to Moffett Field. And you know, Moffett Field is a big place. There are lots of squat buildings. So he's driving around, he didn't know where to go. He asks somebody, he says, where's DIU, the guard? And the guy says, I don't know. This guy goes by and says, are you looking for DIU? I'm DIU. Uh, it was the first director of DIU, and I forget the name of the gentleman now. 
But I'm sure Roy was driving this car. He was wearing, you know, a hoodie as people do in the valley. So um, the uh, the DAU director turns to him and says, "Who are you? Are you the furniture delivery guy?" <laughs> uh, so they got over that. Uh, they had a, got a great discussion, and now we have. Um, uh, thank you, George Duchak. Uh, now we have um, um, Guardian, you know, um, deployed here in the Air Force, and we're talking about even expanding it. So it's a great success story, but it wasn't going to happen if Anshuroi did not make it. You know, uh, if he wasn't so bloody-minded about it. So uh, I I think there is a ton. There's a there's a mountain, a notion, I don't know what superlative to use, of technology expertise, uh, you know, outside the department and the desire, coupled with the desire to help us with our missions. We, we need to make that footprint much wider than it is. And the Air Force has done, I think, a tremendous job um, in the last you know, uh, three or four years while, you know, certainly while Will Roper was here. One of the things that they did, they created the Upworks program that is really expanding the aperture um, I think we're learning a ton. We're bringing a ton of innovation back into the department. Um, and the good thing about it is they did something. They had an MVP, right? <laughs> they started. Um, as we're learning more about what works and what doesn't work, that program will get better and better and better and more focused and more productive. But they started somewhere. So I am really excited uh, about, um, about the opportunity that that presents. I, I think that we need to go much, much further than uh, even that program allows us uh, to do right now. Um, that's really the only way to succeed. I'll tell you, I mean, what I really want, uh, what I wanted while I was at DARPA and I didn't quite get to it, was to, to have a point of presence in the valley. You know how there are, um, you know, there are Apple stores, people walk in and they see these wonderful gadgets. I wanted to have one of these for the department right there in downtown Palo Alto. So people that, you know, with the foot traffic, people who go by, they could come in and see the great things that, that they could see an ABMS, for example, concept, and they could think, she's, you know what, I have this bit that might fit in there. How else would they know? And then behind the counter, there would be people that they would go talk to that would be knowledgeable about their programs. The connection would be made right there and then. There wouldn't be any need to be bloody-minded about finding your entrance to, uh, to the AU before you could uh, you right. could speak to somebody. So, you know, I think we're making a lot of progress and that's demonstrating how much more we can do and how much better it could be if we were successful. Well, those are great analogies and, uh, and, and great recommendations. Now, in a, on a related issue, um, some recent cyber attacks on US infrastructure and government have demonstrated the vulnerability of the networks that we rely on. So yeah. what steps do you think the Air Force should take to protect its own operations? And are there some lessons out there that you think the Air Force can apply from the computer science industry? You know, I, th I think, uh, I think that that's one of the, uh, the so-called wicked problems, right? It truly is a, is a wicked problem. And, uh, you know, the, the Air Force is a user of that infrastructure. You know, the Air Force is not the producer of that infrastructure. And I, I strongly believe every time we try to uh, to produce <laughs> infrastructure, we get it wrong because that's not you know our line of business. You know, our line of business is uh, is, is different. Um, so I think, um, you know, um, and you won't be surprised to hear me say that. I think that a lot of the infrastructure that um, 
that we use will eventually need to come out from the commercial sector, from the world out there that um, has built it, has deployed it, has scaled it, has operated it, has learned you know, what works, what doesn't work, the community that maintains it. You know, one of the worst things, one of the worst aspects of our inability to field new technology in the department is the fact that we put it out there and it takes us years to change it. And you know, like there, there are no systems that I know of that have no vulnerabilities. So the longer you have it out there, the longer the adversary has to find ways to find all those vulnerabilities that we didn't find when we built it in the first place. Um, the only way to avoid that is the heavy change all the time. And how are you gonna change it all the time if it costs too much and you don't have the expertise? Well, you know, if it's not a core competency, let somebody else do it. And yeah, I, I will not say for, for a second that the um, industrial world, the private world has solved this problem. But by golly, you know, we haven't solved it either. And our, you know, if, if our approach is to build it custom for us and believe that somehow we're going to avoid all the pitfalls that a, a, a private sector solution has, then I think we're kidding ourselves. The reason why the systems are vulnerable um, for the most part is because they are wicked hard to put together. So people just make mistakes um, and then people find those vulnerabilities and, and exploit them. Um, you know, one of the recommendations that we had uh, in 2018 when we looked at microelectronics was to create um, to, to, to plus up the JFAC. And uh, you know, the idea being finding vulnerabilities, latent vulnerabilities before our adversaries did that. And the question we were asking ourselves was, well, so suppose that we recommend, you know, that there would be, I don't know, 500 people inside of the JFAC to do this. Where would we find these people? Which school would they come from? Which companies would we hire them from? You know, I worked at Intel and I knew uh, how good our people were, and I knew how hard we tried to make devices that were secure. And here we were, you know, two decades later, finding, um, you know, vulnerabilities like um, like meltdown and scepter and what, what have you. That's not because Intel engineers didn't care or they weren't good. They were the best in the business. It's just wicked hard. Um, so I, you know, I think this is, you know, this is a, um, you know, it's an arms race. People have said that it's an arms race. Um, I think you know it's uh, it's a war that we're better off fighting with our uh, partners from um, from the private sector. Um, you know, we certainly need to uh, you know to to take into account our mission and how we best prosecute it. But I think the core technologies for what we need are going to come from the outside, and so will, by the way our best known methods for using that infrastructure, because it's not just about the technology, you know, you don't just throw things over the wall, you also need to have the know-how and the, um, you know, and the culture for using it so that you know, you know, what to do when it doesn't work, you know who to go to, you have this whole kind of enterprise around it. Um, you know, and, we were talking about innovation being everybody's business. Cybersecurity is like that as well. It's everybody's business. Um, right. 
Well, thank you very much. We've come to the end of this segment of uh, our uh, discussion. Uh, and uh, thanks again, Dr. Coleman, for your insightful comments and for sharing your perspectives on uh, Air Force science priorities. Um, what we're going to do right now is uh, open this session to questions from the audience who've been listening into the conversation. Um, I believe uh, this crowd uh, knows how to do that, but uh, you have the raise hand function. And uh, when I call on you, please unmute your mic and state your name and affiliation. Um, we're going to get started with a question from uh, uh, the uh, <clears throat> question and answer function from Tony, Tony Capasio Bloomberg. Uh, and Tony asks, before coming to the Air Force, uh, you chaired a major Defense Science Board review of defense microelectronic issues that's not yet released. Uh, could you outline some of the major findings and how do the report's findings fit into the overall Biden administration semiconductor policy review? Um, thank you for that question. Um, and I wish I could answer it. I, uh, I unfortunately I can't because I don't know what's in the report. <laughs> I um, I stopped being a member of the Defense Science Board when I joined uh, DARPA. So uh, while I was there at the inception uh, of that study, I was not there at this conclusion. And as you know, the uh, uh, the, the various scientific advisory boards, the DSP included, uh, are on furlough right now while. We, we review their, their operations. So that report, I believe, exists, but it is not made uh, public. Um, I will uh, comment, however, on the 2018 report that the Defense Science Board did. And if you haven't seen that, I would, uh, I would highly recommend you review that. That was published in uh, 2018. Um, and I had, the, I had the privilege of chairing that, uh, that study. Uh, the recommendations that uh, were made uh, well, first of all, you know, make sure that the department has access to rad hard components that we need for our missions. Uh, and uh, we talked a little bit about that earlier. We talked about um, the need to find vulnerabilities before others do. So, you know, the, the desire to um, to add more uh, capacity capability to uh, to the JFAC. We talked a little bit about um, being smart about how you bring. Um, new components inside of our defense system. So we put forward um, uh, heterogeneous integration as a key uh, technology approach that allows you to, uh, allows the DOD to, to kind of customize its solutions to bring in the best of breed from a variety of technologies in one infrastructure. Uh, we also talked about the need to, um, to invest in beyond CMOS um, uh, solutions because we believe we believe strongly, and I still believe that that's what gives us the, the leap ahead. Uh, but with that comes also the responsibility of accelerating the transition of those uh, innovations from the lab to the fab. So there was a recommendation, which I'm really pleased actually to, to see uh, being taken up in the CHIPS legislation around creating a microelectronics commons, proving grounds, if you like, for innovations that come out of um, research that the NSF and DARPA uh, put forward. And the final recommendation, which is a really critical one, was all about uh, workforce development, because you know, you know, we wanted like, like I said, 500 people to put inside of the JFAC. Well, where exactly would they come from? Uh, we talked about heterogeneous integration as a key competency for the department. Where are these people going to come from? 
So uh, workforce development was something that we felt very strongly about. So I don't know uh, what the um, the latest DSP study would recommend, but you know I'd be shocked if it was, you know, a million miles away from what I just described. Uh, thanks for that, Dr. Coleman. Here's one uh, from James Pate. It seems like the Department of Defense has ceded significant scientific expertise and innovation capacity to industry over the last 20 to 30 years. If the government is not going to build it, how do we better port innovation ideas or concepts from within uh, locations like Air Force Research Labs to the production line? So that's a great uh, observation. And I, I will start by saying that um, Actually, what happened is not that we started investing less as a government, it's just that the commercial sector, the private sector has invested a hell of a lot more. So the, the proportions have changed. So that also means that for us, of course, there's, a, there's a, now a much greater opportunity to leverage the investment that others are making to bring it here to the fight. Uh, so that's why I think it's really important for us to have great connectivity with um, with with the private sector. Uh, now, the second part of the question, and I think that is um, that is a great observation. Again, I think there are two ways to, to look at it. One is, you know, how do you go about accelerating the the transit of um, um, you know of learnings and technology from the AFRL right inside its uh, its core customer, the uh, you know the uh, the Air Force. Um, and we do this, I think, partly through these transformational capabilities that we talked about earlier, as well as the well-established methods of experimentation. But, you know, one, um, again, innovation needs to be executable across the organization. And that means innovating in transition as well. So there may be some technology that somebody um, at the AFRL or even you know, a DARPA performer has come up with that we see has a ton of, uh, ton of potential if we could you know, if we bring it about, it could really be game changing and, you know, in a mission that we want to fight. But, you know, it's not ready. And by the way, we don't have the money or the people inside of the government to, um, you know, to mature that. What do we do? Well, what we can do is, um, you know, take a leaf out of the Africa book uh, or the Embedded Entrepreneurship Initiative at uh, DARPA and help those innovators create a new company, a new little company that can go off um, you know, build the technology, field it, mature it, um, maintain it, and then we'll bring it back uh, into um, in, into our mission. Um, and you know, it, it's 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 not necessarily the case that all these ideas will come from the outside. Many of them will come from the inside. So one of the things that um, you know would be, I think, terrific uh, to uh, to do, and I, I I don't think there are any significant barriers to this other than kind of desire to do it. Um, spinning out technologies from the AFRL and actually taking some of our personnel and putting them in a small business on the outside so they, they learn those tricks, the, the tricks of entrepreneurship and how, you know, how technology really um, can be delivered in products and then maybe, you know, come back into the lab and bring that, uh, that set of, of insights and those capabilities right back into um, into our kind of you know, into the core muscle uh, for innovation that we have um, at uh, at the Air Force. 
so I think, you know, creating a spin-out program like that would be a terrific thing to do. And we know how to do it. You know, one of the things that uh, both DARPA and AFWORKS have done really well is, you know, we've built a good set of relationships with venture capitalists, for example. One of the things that we want to do here at the Air Force is to even expand that to create a VC forum. So we know who to go to to get this uh, support for these companies. We know where to send them. Um, so I think there's a terrific opportunity out there to leverage talent, um, you know, slightly outside the perimeter and capital certainly outside the perimeter to help us with our own objectives. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Coleman. Um, how about uh, we turn now to John Turpath? Yes, thank you very much. Um, Doctor, can you talk, tell us um, what's urgent? Uh, your, your predecessor told us there were some urgent investments that needed to be made, for example, in the, uh, the hypersonic wind tunnel area because hypersonics are advancing rapidly. We don't have a lot of uh, infrastructure in that department. When we get a new secretary of the Air Force, what, what's going to be your, your top one, two, or three things that uh, we need to spend some money on urgently? Yeah. So, so hypersonics definitely is on that list. Um, uh, I would say, you know, we were talking about ABMS a moment ago. Jointness is really high up uh, on that list. Um, microelectronics is high up on that list because it underlines, you know, everything we do. And then, you know, th there are specific um, um, kind of capabilities that, um, you know, we. Uh, we hold close <laughs> that are also um, um, uh, high priorities. But you know, if, if you take uh, something like uh, hypersonics, you know, the, the, the need is clear and you know, investments have been made and we've had um, you know, terrific successes. I mean, I, I, I tell you the best day of my, my, my short tenure at DARPA was December 8th. Um, we had you know, the first ever uh, uh, flight of a uh, the TBG, the tactical boost light vehicle. It was, it was an amazing thing. But we have a ton of work to do. And we have a ton of work to do for which our infrastructure here on the ground is um, uh, is wanting. So we definitely need to make uh, um, to make it, make it a priority uh, to create the infrastructure that uh, allows us to make you know accelerated progress in uh, in hypersonics, both in, in both in offense and defense. Let's, let's leave it at that. Okay, thank you. Well, we've come to the end of uh, this uh, Aerospace Nation event, and uh, I'd like to offer a big thanks again to Dr. Coleman and also a, a big uh, uh, welcome to the Air Force. <laughs> to, uh, to Stay you, tuned. <laughs> to you and uh, to our audience. Uh, from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute for uh, Aerospace Power Studies, have a great aerospace power kind of day. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, sir. Thank you.